Hi, Jer. Hi, Kyle. Hey, everyone. Welcome to How to Draw Without Dying, the show for artists who struggle. I'm Jer. I'm a software engineer who's been drawing comics since he was seven. And I'm Kyle. I'm a writer and artist with a flair for the melancholy. And we're here to talk about making art and enjoying art, especially indie art, here in the modern world where it is challenging. It's hard. Very hard. (laughs) It's hard to do. We are streaming this live, as we typically do, on Thursday nights at 7 p.m. Pacific at my Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash ironoki, uh, where my kitty cat, Gangrel Methuselah, is hanging out and we're drawing. Uh, Kyle, what are you drawing tonight? I'm working on my horror comic some more of this light. I have got my sketchbook out and and Pinterest, and I'm going to be trying to design sketch and, and design characters from the short story I wrote this week. Piotr Nikitin murdered Andrew Greywater again. Nice. <laughs> Which we'll be talking about a little bit later. Kyle, you identify as an artist and creator with a flair for the melancholy. That is something I've been known to describe myself as, yes. I've always been fond of that, and um, and I think, like, anyone that's listened to every episode of the show knows that we, we it, took a, it took us a little while before we got the, the, open, the cadence of the opening pitch, the, the, the welcome message. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we finally landed on it, because I think, like, you had, you had a lot of, you were really, like, particular about what you wanted it to be and what you didn't want it to be. Mm-hmm. And when we landed on it, I, I, it hit me and, and I was just like, no, that's perfect. <laughs> that's perfect. And I think I'd been introducing myself as that in other places for a while, mm. too. But like nailing it down for this show was uh, definitely like helped me so time. Like, yeah, no, that is a good way to describe me. Yeah. <laughs> and when we were planning season two, it, I think it, I'm pretty sure if I remember right, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, how to write darkly was one of the topics that you were the most excited about. I think so. It, it came, it came in pretty early when we were brainstorming like our topic list for season two. So I apologize for the counter strike that I have planned today. <laughs> this is, this is all in good fun because Kyle and I have very different aesthetics. I love, happy stories i love pretty and cute things i love leafy flowery lush aesthetic it's boggled me as as friends before we were like co-conspirators in in projects (laughs) that we had like such a like these polar opposite aesthetics and it really comes to light when we do um when we go to cons together and we have like the 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 several crows table where there's the light side and the dark side (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for the record the dark side was way more popular (laughs) people were all about it i think i had the benefit of the corner but (laughs) is that uh at any rate i i got my episode i gotta talk about sad stories and dark stories and and all that so now it's your turn to talk about that thing you like today we're going (laughs) to talk about the opposite of how to how to to write darkly and we're going to talk about how to write nicely and we actually are still to this moment struggling with the right word for it, because like what, <laughs> it nicely means you, you know, I guess that I mean, like it only makes sense as a, as a counterpoint to how to write darkly. Yeah. Well, like like that could mean a, a thing of quality or like, you know, a measurement of quality, which is not what we're going for here. Now we thought about like how to write cleanly. Different thing. <laughs> how to write happily. Also Ooh, no, not what we're not talking about. Yeah. So, yeah, the the purpose tonight is is how to write happy stories. Mm-hmm. So 
as I typically like to do when I start a conversation, I like with if I'm going to say how, I want to start with why. And um, happy stories and happy endings. How to write warmly, says Squirrel Horde. Ooh, <laughs> that's that's actually I, you know what? That's, that's better than anything else we've said you so know far. What? You know what? <laughs> Let's. I'm I'm updating. <laughs> how to write gently? I, I, I like, like warmly. warmly. Warmly is the right one. Give me but a moment. <laughs> warmly is exactly the right one and i'll have to edit it to see how that goes but i might actually keep that <laughs> keep that change in the podcast okay why do we write nice stories my theory is the world isn't always nice so we write what we wish there was more of the world isn't always simple the world isn't always fair there's bad stuff and so writing a nice story or writing a story with a happy ending helps us contextualize the bad things that happen. It helps us define what's good and what's bad. It lets us imagine the nice things and it lets us focus on the things that are nice in the world. Now, one of the things that I find really interesting about Kyle's and my polar opposite aesthetics is that I think both of us come from a place of like, well, you know, life is rough. Life is dark and mm -hmm, sad. Mm -hmm. And where you like to create these dark narratives that focus on the hope that remains. And, and I think the way that you said it was uh, guide people into the darkness so that they can uh, arrive safely on the other side. Um, mm -hmm. My approach to the same emotional starting point is to focus on what is nice. And it gives me sort of the context of what, is good about life what is good about you know my my experience and and the human experience and the experience here on earth what are the things that are worth protecting what are the things that are worth putting energy in to to and, and spending time with i mean my my joke with this is whole like how how to write nicely what's 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 that how, how to write warmly I, I don't i don't know any other way yeah um <laughs> And it's a, a bit of a joke, but there's definitely some criticism I got in my early like writing career before you know I even met you. It was just wow, this is so dark, and I'm like, is it? I wasn't, I wasn't trying to be dark. Like, I didn't even know a tale was a horror until like that's what other people called it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I guess I just kind of have a penchant for it. I've definitely you know, especially recently, found a lot more stories that are I would say wholly positive mm -hmm. that. Um, have spoken to me more than they had in the past. I've, I've always liked stuff with, I guess, a bit of an edge to it. Um, <laughs> but uh, certainly there, there's some some stuff that's appealing to me more on the other side um, a lot more these days. When I think of nice stories, of warm stories, of, of happy stories, the events in them aren't all necessarily happy. Mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. think you could... Like for simplicity's sake, look at a a Disney story, which are largely taken from fairy tales, mm -hmm. where there's a person, they are a good person, there is a problem that they must face, they go on an adventure to deal with that problem, there are some bad people in the world that are antagonizing them, are are either they either personify the problem or are actively in the way of what the the good person needs to do and 
the key element, I think like a, a nice story can have dark elements in it. The thing that makes it a, a warm story, I like that word. Well, I'll just use that for the rest of this, is <laughs> um, is a happy ending. And that creates a very interesting conversation with a dark story because a lot of the dark stories also have happy endings. So there's probably Venn diagram overlap between a dark mm. story and a warm story. It, it's definitely within the journey rather than the destination because you're right, like dark stories can have happy endings and they often don't either, but uh, certainly a, a hopeful end or a positive end is not uncommon at all. An ending where there has been some kind of resolution. So I think finding about like what it is about the story itself makes it something more lighthearted or warm or, you know, I guess positive uh, being another word. Another thing that plays heavily into like what is a warm story versus a, a, a dark story. It makes me think of the power of aesthetic. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you could have a horror story with a happy veneer. The video game Kirby is very much this. Kirby is a cosmic nightmare. The actual themes and the actual events in a Kirby video game are absolute cosmic horror. They are some really, really scary concepts of existentialism and and things that are so huge that it dwarfs the meaning of, of the individual. Entities that are the antithesis of existence, let alone sapience, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's some really horrifying concepts in Kirby if you if you dig deep into it and, and learn about some of these monsters you're fighting. But it's Kirby. It's this happy pink little little ball that says hi and and is just on a happy adventure. And his first boss is always just like a tree. A lot of his adventures begin because someone took his food. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's that's an example of a horror story with a happy veneer. But then you've got the opposite. You've got truly heartwarming and warm stories that have an absolutely macabre veneer. And I was like brainstorming for half a second. Wait, can I think of what? And then just Adam's family fell in my lap. Adam's family. Uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, Night maybe? Oh, yeah. Nightmare Before Christmas is a very happy story. <laughs> Um, it's a, it's a, uh, so I'm, it's a story Tim, of, Tim Burton, I think, is a good one to look at mm -hmm. in general for for that sort of thing. Yeah. Nightmare Before Christmas is about self-discovery. It's mm. it's about like, who am I? What if I was something different? And then discovering the parts of yourself that you're like tired of and the parts of yourself that define you. Mm hmm. I love Adam's family. Adam's family is a story of a, of a family that is very close. They uh, they care about each other. They're very healthy and like uh, functional. Like they are monsters, <laughs> but but they have a very healthy family life. And like they they're proud of their history. They're proud of who they are. They're proud of like their their family legacy and have. And really, it's the story of, no, we don't need to be what everyone else is. We can just be us. And frankly, they're a lot more wholesome than a lot of like normal family dynamic sitcoms over the over the decades. Like think of think of how many supposedly like feel good comedy sitcoms where the main joke is like my wife and I don't get along. Uh, actually, I love that you mentioned that because Cody and I were talking about this <laughs> the other day. Uh, <laughs> it may have even been today. I don't remember. There are some sitcoms I remember well, and and when I think about it, like 
a lot of the the sitcom format was let's take this thing that's nothing and blow it out of proportion. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. sometimes it's cringy. Sometimes it's oh, what are you? Why are we blowing this out of proportion? This is dumb. But there were a few few key points. I remember in the eighties where a sitcom would the character would blow something out of proportion, and the lesson was why you don't need to blow this out of proportion. This is normal. And I remember a couple of instances of, say, something that's unfortunately rather contentious right now, like trans rights. I remember a couple of episodes of sitcoms in the 80s where the plot was, oh, this person's trans. And most of the characters are like, "Okay," And one character blows it out of proportion. And everyone's like, you don't need to blow it out of proportion. And that was the lesson <laughs> is that, no, this mm-hmm. this is just a thing that exists. Don't blow it out of proportion. And I was like, wow, that's super pro trans for the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Squirrel Horde says there's a single stark difference uh, between dark stories and warm stories uh, in their experience. And that's the presence of whimsy, defiant hopefulness rather than desperate hopefulness. I like that. A story I kind of definitely wanted to bring up one of the like. The, the the warm story that really got me recently was Dr. Stone, mm-hmm. um, which brief summary for people, anime, the entire world, every human being on Earth gets frozen in stone for a bajillion years. Um, one super smart teenager is the first person to break out of stone. His dream was always to go into space. He's like, well, great. If I'm ever going to go to space, I'm just going to have to fast forward all of all of human technology back to where we were before from the Stone Age. And it becomes this really like warm story about how far we've come as humanity and, mm. and how like the steps we've taken to get where we are now. And we actually have accomplished a lot and a lot that wouldn't have been possible if we weren't if we didn't work together. Mm. And yeah, those those. Those themes, even amongst like, again, a dark sort of start, make it just like such a feel good story for me Mm. every episode. One of the most classic warm stories, again, this would this would certainly cover most of Disney is the good versus evil story. Mm. And I think it's easy for good versus evil to get a bad rap as, oh, this again. Now, mm-hmm. I do think it is one of the most common stories, certainly in American media, especially in um, American cinema, American television, the establishment of the good person, the bad person, the victory of the good person over the bad person is very formulaic. I would say that there exists the Hollywood movie, the Hollywood formula in its purest least interesting form the the three-act film the pacing the introduction of the characters the introduction of the plot the introduction of the antagonist the confrontation pacing the resolution the happily ever after ending the consequences of the villain the almost required heterosexual (laughs) romantic (laughs) success is that bad? Not inherently. I would not say uh, this is something that that you and I used to talk about a lot back in the comic club is that tropes aren't bad, nor are they good. They are tools. They are frameworks. And so you can use those those uh, those tropes as a scaffolding to tell a really 
meaningful story. Or you can just add juice to that scaffold and ship it as, hey, look, it's it's the movie again with this <laughs> flavor in it. So I carefully suggest that there's nothing wrong with a good old good versus evil story. I I 100% agree. I, I think it's harder to make good versus evil interesting mm. because it is so common. Mm. That means it, only in that you need to have something else. It in of itself is not good versus evil to me is not actually a story that in and of itself is just a trope. And I've certainly seen a lot of stories that are just that put that trope there and assume it's a, a story. Mm hmm. When you look at examples of that that are solidly good, I, I I have a lot of critiques about The Lord of the Rings. Ooh, yeah, 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 yeah. The critiques are not about it being good versus evil. Mm -hmm. Because that story isn't really about good versus evil. It's about like overcoming hardship. Mm. Yeah, the the ultimate antagonist is literally just an embodiment of evil, but it's it's much more about their journey to succeed rather than just, oh, I wonder if the good guys are going to win this movie. <laughs> well, it's absolutely fascinating that you bring up Lord of the Rings because it is also a fairly by the books hero's journey. Like mm -hmm. when I, you know, the monomyth hero's journey, the call to action, the refusal to answer the call, the divine intervention, the passing of a threshold. There's the temptation away from the quest. There's the confronting of the dragon uh meaning you know the whatever the problem is it doesn't it could be a, a literal or metaphorical dragon and ultimately the return to the normal world with what is literarily called the elixir which is the thing that will change the world the way that the protagonist was changed so would you say Kyle that Lord of the Rings is a warm story, a dark story, or it doesn't matter. It depends. I think of it personally as a warm story. I also think primarily of the movies. I'm not sure if... Because I've read the books, but it's been a while, and the, the books did not touch me the same way the movies did, weirdly enough. Uh, I read the books after seeing the movies, and they filled in gaps. And I think they were paced very differently and I got a much better sense of like what Tolkien was interested in and and what which mm -hmm. details he was passionate about versus which details made a good movie. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think I one one factor that firmly puts it in warm for me is does anyone here or in chat not feel just a little bit better when they hear the Shire theme? That's a good point. Uh, actually, that's really interesting because one of the key changes between the book and the movie was the was the scouring of the Shire, mm -hmm. where they come back from the quest and the Shire is under lockdown from uh, Saruman, who didn't die. He mm -hmm. came back to the Shire to wreck shit. And, and everyone's just kind of like under... They're they're on lockdown. They're like, this is bad. They burned down the tree. They're he's he's wrecking everything, and he's he's intent to basically enslave them, right? And mm -hmm. the the four hobbits get back, 
and they're like, everyone get up, we're revolting right now. And there's like an entire, <laughs> entire conversation of like, it's late at night. Do we want to wait till morning? And they're like, no, that is the normal Hobbit thing to do to wait till morning. Not this time. And, mm-hmm. and it's this, this uplifting uprising. Like it's, it's horrifying, but like also this is what the four like returned to. And they're mm-hmm. like, we just stared down the devil. <laughs> you think we're gonna put up with this we, shit? We can, we can, <laughs> we can deal with the devil's side bitch. Yes. So yeah, and it's like no, we have been changed by our adventure, and we're going to change the Shire as a response. We're gonna bring what what we've gained, like the 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 ability to stand against evil we're going to introduce that to our friends, to our family, to our home and change our home permanently Mm -hmm. into one that will not put up with this shit. And there's, that is the elixir in, in, Mm -hmm. in a, in a moment. And the difference of the, uh, of the movie is how the hobbits were changed. Isn't really there. The elixir part of the, of the monomyth heroes journey isn't and i say this hesitantly because i i'm willing to be argued otherwise it feels missing to me without the scouring of the shire but this is something that people have discussed at length yeah <laughs> um, Pro- proper tolkien sco- sco- mm-hmm. <laughs> scholars sorry uh scholars have discussed that at length <laughs> yeah 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 but there is another thing about uh, Lord of the Rings that I consider to be one of the aspects of a warm story is a conclusion. Mm. Now, I wouldn't say that that's distinct from a dark story, but but what is a happy ending? A happy ending, in in my opinion, what, what makes a, a, a warm story's happy ending is that it is satisfying, it is conclusive, and it is fair. You You reach the end, and it feels like the end. It feels like the end of the story. They lived happily ever after means what happens next doesn't matter about this story. They're good now. They they mm-hmm. they re- they did the thing and they reached an end. And and what happens from here on out is happily ever after. They, there's there's nothing to worry about. There are the regular things to worry about, presumably, and that that one encounters in life. But they weren't as intense as what happened in the story. Mm-hmm. So you get this conclusion, this satisfying conclusion. And and this is one of the things that you and I talked about like before we started recording is the fairness of it. And that brings us back to good versus evil. Life isn't fair. <laughs> Life doesn't give a shit that the good guy always wins, that people who work hard get what they deserve, that people who are evil are punished or face consequences life does not give a shit we apply society (laughs) to try and make this more likely to occur but there are plenty of stories of good people uh, of bad things happening to good people of bad people continuing to like face no consequences until their dying days so we turn to our narratives and we write happy endings. We write stories where the good person worked hard, persevered, and in the end was rewarded for the good things that they did. 
we write stories where the bad guy was caught, identified as bad and punished or had to face the consequences of their badness and and the consequences in a good, good ending and a good, happy ending are fair. I think that leads to the problem Disney has with letting a a villain survive. <laughs> so in addition to what you just said there about endings and what Jif Pop says in chat, I think Lord of the Rings is warm because you know that, that the good guys are going to win even though they may not be okay in the end. Mm. Or um, And also I would like, like to uh, just bring attention to Shiny Zubat saying, I've always felt um, Lord of the Rings is dark leaning, definitely hopeful and definitely sad, uh, but despite that refusing to give up. And yeah, I definitely think that like, we're talking into my skewed perception of what is warm and what is dark in that like, man, uh, some people think things are dark that I don't think are dark at all. <laughs> so like, like I, I might be skewed there. But as far as the, you know, what makes a happy ending is concerned, I, I think that's actually what's at the core of whether a story is warm or not to me. Mm. And that is rather than what happens at the end, but the promises established in the beginning of mm. the story. Like Jif Pop says, like, you know, the good guys are going to win um, a, a story that communicates and it's, you know, in in the marketing it gives you ahead of time or the, you know, first few pages that the good guys are going to win. The characters are going to be OK. The world is going to be OK. Or at the very least, if the world isn't going to be OK, then that's not what we care about. Mm. <laughs> what we care about will be protected. Any warm story. In a sense, what what that tells me is that a warm story is one that says, I am a warm story. And mm-hmm. and a dark story is one that says, I am a dark story. And <laughs> and like that note in the beginning is very much important to the mood that is established and whether it successfully delivered upon that. We could um probably do a whole episode on the idea of trigger warnings and while i'm generally glad they exist i was a bit like touchy about them when they first kind of became a thing Mm. because i think a good story should be able to communicate what's going to be in it in its tone but there's certainly some specificity that like you know as i grew as a person i realized i'm like oh yeah if someone very specifically has a thing about like spiders crawling out of your eyes Mm. You might be able to communicate that awful things are going to happen in the story, but you probably won't be able to communicate that specific thing. Yeah, it reminds me of the website. Does the dog die? Uh huh. Where that is not a definitive identifier of whether it's a dark story or a warm story or something else, but it is a rather measurable uh, metric. Mm -hmm. Hades. Does the dog die? No. But the game does a little bit of a bait and switch (laughs) and make you think that the dog might have to die. And then it's like, oh, I can't. We're not going to. The dog's fine. Come on. What are we doing here? No, the the pupper is totally okay. Uh, I love that bit. (laughs) And and then you've got uh, um, Chainsaw Man. Oh, yeah. Which is. Does the dog die? The answer is define dog, define die. die. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and that's a very yeah. dark story. <laughs> John Wick. Yes. And it's kind of the point. <laughs> <laughs> 
I all this is to say I find the the conversation between the audience and the the creator very important, mm-hmm. especially the part that happens at the beginning of a story, because like there are times where where bait and switches are important to a story, but they need to be earned. Otherwise, they feel cheated. It's it's the main thing I, I couldn't stand about uh, the first season of Invincible. I I. I actually quite like the show overall, but the bait and switch did not feel earned for me there. Yeah. I, I sat down expecting a certain kind of story and did not get that kind of story. <laughs> yeah, I, on the other hand, saw only the the, the surprise yeah. twist and I was like, hmm, I am not interested in this at all. That is <laughs> that is Mortal Kombat finisher levels of disturbingly <laughs> gruesome and and then when when omni-man appeared in mortal Kombat, i was like yeah of course he did (laughs) (laughs) of of course he did uh and i don't think that bait and switch really added to the story yeah good versus evil i think is one of the oldest story types and i think a lot about what what does that serve why is that our go-to why is that like such an early concept and i think about stories as lessons where okay the world is complicated but let's tell a story that makes it simple if a person does this that's a good thing so we are going to build a character a good character around doing this good thing and then the opposite of that would be this bad character that does this bad thing and so we're going to put these two characters against each other and because we are trying to teach a lesson or instill certain morals we are going to have the good guy win and the bad guy lose and we're going to have this this fairness in in our little created world that we that we can't have in in the in the complexity of the real world so you mentioning that like the sense of fairness uh being a quality of it and i i we we were talking about this a little bit before stream and one thing that came to me that makes me think that's not it is like a slasher movie's fair like if you it, it, it there there is a monster if you do the things that will lead them on like like most of the people who die in monster movies are people making bad decisions but i guess for some people they might you know they might be a comfort type of movie but like i wouldn't describe them as warm i think i did i recently talk about horror movies on the show probably during the white right yeah uh, no i remember because i was talking about um it was in the third act where i was talking about chucky where Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. first time a the the first iteration of a horror movie is often a mystery what is going on how does it Mm. work what is it doing and yeah and then like as it iterates it kind of takes a trend towards comedy because at that point it's not a mystery we know what it's doing but though but the idiot did the thing that makes it do the thing Mm-hmm. I think like the, the the horror comes from the unknown. We did briefly talk on one of the tools being aesthetic. You brought up Kirby. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and while I definitely like aesthetic can be a very powerful tool, and really like that's that's something that that comes in Lord of the Rings too. The 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 Shire song I mentioned is specifically mm-hmm. an aesthetic yeah. thing. And 
and we start with the Shire. Here's the good place. This is what we're going to protect. Yeah, I, I think it's an important tool, but it's not the qualifier because I've definitely well, mm. I've seen dark stories use, quote, warm aesthetics and use that juxtaposition well. I've also like seen stories that were supposed to be warm stories, but like had like just something a little messed up about the premise. And mm. all that did was like really make everything feel uncanny and wrong um, yeah. in a way they weren't intending. <laughs> I think that puts me in mind of when people are applying a flavor to the trope rather than actually writing a story. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very common uh, or, or that can commonly happen when you're trying to produce the story to be a certain type of story rather than just tell a story and use those those tools, those narrative constructs to tell the story. Mm -hmm. it's 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 like are we are we coloring by numbers in the trope or are we telling a story and using the trope as 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 a structure yeah who's your favorite disney villain who is my favorite disney good question yeah i have mine and i'm gonna start a thing about it but i want to ask you first i think my gut says jafar thank you <laughs> was it was his yours also jafar? My, jafar is my favorite Jafar nice. is my favorite Disney villain. The reason why I love Jafar is because he looks evil. Mm -hmm. We, the viewer, look at Jafar and say, that is an evil man. No one else in the story looks like Jafar. <laughs> he's, he's so obviously different from everyone else in the story he looks like a sinister dark mean man who is going to do bad things none of the other characters see him that way he does not appear evil to aladdin or jasmine or the sultan he appears to the sultan as a trusted advisor and Jasmine is completely comfortable around him. Oh yeah, he's just a guy in the in the in the, the royal court. He he's you know my dad's advisor, whatever. And like, oh yeah, he did some legal things. Yeah, all right. Maybe 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 some like uh, creepy old dude vibes. But I mean, yeah, he's okay. Been here the you know time. what? <laughs> he's not even like they don't even treat him like he's a creepy old dude. They treat him like he is a he is a member of the staff. Hmm. Like their interactions with him in the early and mid movie are with a person who would be in his position in the Royal court. And it is not until Aladdin sees Jafar doing something evil. Jafar, even like up until Jafar's doing Jafar starting to look sketch and things are starting to be a little bit weird. And I was like, what's, what's going on? What's going on? They don't suspect him because he doesn't look evil to them. Mm -hmm. He hasn't done anything evil in their presence. And so for most of the movie, they're just kind of, oh yeah, hey, Jafar, what's up? Oh yeah, you oh you did this law thing? That's kind of a strange thing to do, but you know, hey, could you talk to me if you're gonna just throw a guy in jail and murder him, you know? Like he 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 had, he told uh, Jasmine that, the, that Aladdin had been just, you know, executed in jail. And she's like, that's, fuck. And she doesn't like, you know, argue with him. <laughs> she says, mm. shit, the guy I liked is gone. Just, just gone. It's right up until Aladdin sees him do an evil thing, which is he's got his, his snake stick that, that hypnotizes you, right? He's mm. like shoving it in the Sultan's face. 
to to dominate him, right? And then mm-hmm. the Sultan starting to like like turn, like like change his mind in front of them, and the staff is glowing with evil dark energy. Aladdin's like, "Well, wait, what the fuck is that?" And he grabs <laughs> the stick and smashes it, and the Sultan snaps out of it. And they're like, "Yo, I think the I think Jafar was up to some dirt." Mm-hmm. And Jafar's like, what? No, what? Me? No, no, I wasn't. Dude, you were just literally up to some dirt in front of us. And that's when they start seeing him as evil. Mm-hmm. It's the most perfect warm story villain because the audience knows from the minute we see him that he's evil, but the characters never treat him as evil until they see him do evil. Mm hmm. And I love that because it's actually internally consistent. As far as everyone in the story is concerned, he's just a human being. He's a part of the story. He's like he's a, he is a player, but no one knows his intent. If I may talk a little bit more about warm stories, I like. Yes, please. Spy Family. You've seen some of that, right? Oh, oh, Spy X Family, the anime. Yes, we don't have pronounce the some. X here. I see. <laughs> Yes, uh, uh, Spy Cross Family. Yes, the anime. <laughs> yes, actually, I, I, you said Spy Family, and I'm thinking like, was that a movie in the '90s that I missed? What is that like? Is that like Spy Kids? Like the, the, whether you met the rest of their family? I don't no. Know. Okay. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. It has exactly <laughs> Hunter X Hunter um, <laughs> says Fermata. That has exactly what I was talking about with the um, the sort of audience conversation. I'm like, mm. this this is. At one part, it is one part like spy thriller, one part like wholesome family story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like normally I'd be worried that spy thriller stuff might be too dangerous, but it very clearly communicates that like, yeah, sure, there's spy thriller stuff, but Anya's always going to be OK. That is a very important reason for how I'm able to, you know, like that show and and feel so safe with that show is like, I know at the very least Anya will always be okay. I think the moment I checked out and haven't checked back in, because I I do want to finish that series. It is it it was a lot of fun. I it's like like um like like does the dog die. I can't deal with stories where bad things happen to kids. Mm hmm. I can't handle that. Uh, I, I, I'll just check out. And it was, it was pretty established that no, Anya's going to be safe. That the story is about Anya will be safe. Mm-hmm. The pressure point for me was when, uh, mm. we can put okay, a spoiler. Give me, give me a moment to pick, choose my words to dance here. Okay. I was concerned that, a person in Anya's class was like Anya and mm. that horrified me mm-hmm. as like, Oh my God, the consequences of that are really bad. And so like, it wasn't even anything the show did. <laughs> I did it to myself where mm-hmm. I, I added like this, this what if that was never suggested, but it's like, nah, it's too much. <laughs> that, that would be so bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I need to trust. I need to trust that the rest of the show is 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 under the the like the ruling that that Anya will be will be safe. Mm-hmm. There's one more thing about good versus evil, and I, like good versus evil does not a warm story make. That's not the only thing. Mm-hmm. But 
I keep going back to it because it's kind of the quintessential one. It's sort it's it's you know, it's the earliest concept. It's the it's the it's a happy story in the its basest form. It is like here's the good guy, here's the bad guy, here is the happy ending. Mm-hmm. Formulaic, perhaps. So I think about the good versus evil story that succeeds versus the one that doesn't. Certainly one of the things that makes it not not succeed is is using the formula without any substance, without, you know, using the formula as as the be all end all rather than, you know, an ingredient. Mm-hmm. Like you can't make cookies with just vanilla. <laughs> and I think this gets to the thing about good versus evil that makes it a warm story and what could make another and any story a warm story is that it it resonates it tells a story of the world that makes you think yeah it could it could it could be like that it's probably not going to be like that the world <laughs> our, our happy stories are usually idealized they're usually uh imagined so that we can kind of escape <laughs> the unfair the the dark but when the story, the warm story can just make you feel like, wow, it would be really nice if things worked that way. Mm-hmm. It would be really nice if the the two romantic partners ended up in the end, despite like struggling. It'd be really nice if the bad guy actually couldn't harm the good guys in the end and <laughs> and they were protected from them. Uh, it would be really nice if uh, if the person that works really hard succeeded in the end and i think it's those themes of wouldn't it be nice if it worked this way if if it played out this way wouldn't it be nice if this fictional thing could be a real thing Mm. and i think that's what makes a story warm I I don't think we can do a better end to the segment than that. I kind of felt it. I kind of felt it. <laughs> no, wait, this is it. This is it. I got it. <laughs> Today is December 21st, 2023. The holidays are almost here. Hey, Kyle. Hello. I'm Jer, and these are some comics that I found on Kickstarter that I want to do well, because I'd actually like them all to do well, but I can only pick a few. And the first one I've got today is Skyless by Sean Sean Coyle. I would like to draw your attention to these very cute little animated uh, clips of the artwork, which are an excellent touch. In the not-so-distant future, energy has become uh, a virtually infinite and sustainable resource thanks to the global implementation of an artificial sky composed of large solar panels. But when a global catastrophe strikes, it isn't long before society collapses and the solar panel sky fails with it. Uh, leaving what's left of the world covered in total darkness. Hundreds of years later, a small city has sprung up on an island of light that is completely surrounded by the darkness. Our story begins in Luxem, the city of light. This is... Uh, Kyle, you remember when we looked at Doigan Swift's book, A Girl in the Glim? Mm-hmm. And we talked about how it's like, it is clear that this was like like drawn by animators? Yeah. The clips of the comic book are literally animated on the on the uh, on the Kickstarter. They want you to sh- they want to show you that they're thinking about it moving. So this is like 
clearly has like the heart of animation in it. Uh, reminds me of like older hand-drawn like cinema animation, like where it's got just enough ink to do the job, but it really relies on the flats to uh, to kind of like define the shape uh, and 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 tones on top of that. So it kind of like gives us these realistic characters and landscapes, but simplified with like an animator sensibility. And just the use of color is just using the full spectrum to just set mood, set tone, set environment. Really, really pretty stuff going on here. We are at, see, a little over 1,500 of a uh, 2,500 goal with 42 backers. So good start and a whole month to go. I hope that does well. Yeah, getting more than half this early, that's a strong, that's a strong sign. Mm-hmm. Next up, Girl in the Red Hood by Kevin Williams. Now, didn't really get a good like synopsis here, but in, in short, it's uh, Red Riding Hood with a slightly modern, slightly dark fantasy interpretation. And this ink style is to die for. This is really cool ink work. Uh, let's see. Yeah, really talented ink work. Solid blacks and ink textures. Really good use of white, actually. I think uh, even myself, like, it's easy for me to forget to, like, use solid blacks and solid whites for composition. And this is doing both. So we've got really cool ink textures with with white and black contrast to, like, like just build shapes, build settings. Uh, I'm looking at a picture of of the uh, of the candy house. <laughs> which I think is Hensel and Gretel, not Red Riding Hood, but I think we're going places in this. Uh, Red herself looks super cool. Uh, character design is telling me a lot of what to expect from this reinterpreted, reinterpretation. It's got like it, kind of a kind of a modern, a uh, little bit of sci-fi. I think she's got like a robot arm and a robot leg and kind of like a, a modern-ish outfit uh, for her for her red cloak. And just the shape of the of the greenery, the shape of the plants is really speaking to like the the, the kind of ink work that I like to do. And not going to lie, there's some anime energy in this. Uh, she's got a little wrist crossbow, <laughs> you know, like berserk. It doesn't turn on a crank, though. It's just a wrist crossbow. I don't know. I like it. It's cool. Uh, looks like it's just getting started. Only seven backers, uh, just a couple hundred bucks, but we're looking for a 2K, which is completely reasonable. That is completely achievable. So, uh, I think it just needs some eyes on it. And that should do quite well. Last up, uh, Sumerian Phoenix by Rashan Dennis, aka Stapa, and crew. Okay, bit of a long introduction here, so bear with me. In the prime of ancient civilization, the Sumerians flourished under the wisdom of the Anu, Anunnaki, uh, enigmatic celestial titans of formidable power. Among them, harmonious souls saw humanity as kin, while a dissenter saw men as mere slave, slaves. Uh, a schism ignited and a catastrophic war between the kind-hearted uh, Anunnaki and humans, allied with their demigod offspring against a tyrannical Anunnaki. In a gambit for ultimate control, the oppressors forged the Zul-Ur-Kal, a dreadful relic capable of shattering human will. But from the ashes of despair, hope rose. Uh, the benevolent Anunnaki, inspired by the resilience of humanity, gifted a bold human warrior a cosmic power. The Sumerian Phoenix was born. The Phoenix, a trailblazing champion infused with unparalleled energy, ready to spearhead the resistance. Um, 
superheroes. <laughs> really, really completely different. I love, I love, I love indie superheroes so much more than than industry superheroes. I'm so bored of those guys. I want I want this new stuff. Um, I'm looking at just beautiful shapes, bold colors. Uh, let's see. It's created by uh, Rashawn Dennis and illustrated by by Mariano Ruiz. Um, gold and yellow seem to be the big theme colors here. So yeah, it's, it's using all, all the colors, but like we're looking at like precious objects and beams of sunlight are really kind of like thematic establishment here. Uh, mix of like superheroic statuesque, uh, characters and then you're, and then you're grounded every man, you know, kind of your, your Superman and Clark Kent things going on. But, uh, but it really creates this like, Oh, there's my day life. There's my, there's my superhero. <laughs> Uh, ink work is just, just industry level. It's what you expect from American comics. It's really, really high quality. And, and the characters are just, yeah, there's a, there's a diverse crew in there. <laughs> uh, where are we at with this? Um, we're looking for 6,000 and we're just about at 1,000, uh, with 15 backers. So still 22 days to go. Uh, again, I think it just needs eyes on it. I think this can make it. That's the comic shop for this week. Kyle, where can people find links? There will be links in the show notes as well as on your website. Which is jer.art. Just click on Jer's crowdfunded comic shop and you'll see links to these and all the comics I talk about on the show. I also read a comic. What did you read? I read Modern Carapace by Jacob Kudes. Uh, let's see. The best way to find out more about this is to go to at Modern Carapace on the Twitters. Uh, let's see, he does have a website, uh, jacobkudes.com. That's J-A-C-O-B-K-U-D-D-E-S. Uh, looks like it's a little bit under construction and, and <laughs> having making websites for a living, I can tell you that you, you never know exactly how long that's going to take. So, Modern Carapace is the adventures of, well, at least chapter one, is the adventures of uh, Escher, Esther Wheatle. Uh, and she pilots a giant robot called the Tarantula Hawk. How do you feel about giant robots fighting giant monsters? It's it's a very classic fun action scene setup. This hits something that I only know of one other example of. Uh, Cody was telling me about it. Uh, the the Kaiju uh, Preservation Society, I think it was called. Huh. Where um the big monsters are just animals, <laughs> and our uh, and our hero. Uh, piloting a giant robot with a scarf, which is one of my favorite things. <laughs> I like it when a robot has a scarf. It happens every once in a while. Why does he need that scarf? He ain't shut up. cold. Because shut up. <laughs> I love robots with scarves. I love it. Esther is a ranger on Mars, tasked with uh, patrolling and 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 preserving uh, protected wildlands, uh, where megafauna uh, make their home. And um, on this particular day, it's a particularly perfect uh, environment for uh, for poachers to show up. And uh, and Esther's got to get into a fight against some people that want to eat the big monsters. The monsters are lovely. The robots are super cool looking. 
the robot's got a scarf. This is one I reviewed on on when it was still a Kickstarter. And one of the big things I talked about is just the orange and blue. And it's like it is super deliberate to be a like like, you know, we're, we're using the, the the contrasting colors to to set a mood here because the the, the weather shifts and it goes from orange and blue to just orange. <laughs> and it's a big mood when it happens. It's a really cool little world building experience. We get a really se- real good sense of like what it's like to be a ranger on Mars and what the poachers are like. They're jerks. They're <laughs> they're huge jerks. They're big butts. Uh and the and and the animals are just animals. They're large animals, but they're just animals. And the ranger actually understands them really well. And uh, and so where you get like things like uh, the first avatar where um, the blue people avatar where um, where nature saves the day is kind of like, well, it's good thing that happened because we were fucked otherwise. Um, It's it's like it actually makes more sense because it's like the person who understands nature is able to work with it. And it's a really cool theme, really great big robot fight battles. Really cool design monsters. They're not monsters. They're just they're just creatures. And they want to protect their babies. Uh like I was really excited when this was a Kickstarter and uh the they're they're called the uh Armac- Armacada or what the uh, this particular um uh, animal is called. And like we get like a real description of like their behavior. And like what, because, you know, the way that they work and the way that they uh, are are protecting their babies and why the poachers are after them. And I'd like to introduce you, Kyle, to uh, to Wed, who is Esther's companion, who is is a robot skeleton man. Nice. Isn't he nice? Uh, There's a bit of a conversation about how he'd like to get flesh someday. And (laughs) Esther's like, you know, I kind of like you as a robot skeleton. (laughs) You look nice this way. Uh, He's he's a little buggy. He just recently like had a just recently downloaded a patch update. So he's just a little twitchy today, but he's such he's a nice guy. He kind of like helps out with the mechanics and and it's kind of like her uh, her her contact back at base. Yeah, like I said, I was super hype when I saw this on Kickstarter. I got a copy. I, I I got it like this week and I read it and it's like it lived up to the hype perfectly. It's got a robot with a scarf that that robot has a poncho. Look at it. It's got a poncho. <laughs> Why does he have a poncho? Shut up. And yet love it. And yet the skeleton boy isn't allowed to have skin. He is. They just don't have it right now. (laughs) No, he he's no. It's 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 not that she. It's not that it. The end of it. They're talking about. Hey, I I heard you. Don't worry. We're gonna get on that. Resources (laughs) are are tight, but no, I know that you would like skin. (laughs) Uh, Modern carapaces by Jacob Kudes. very nice guy. Uh, talked to him a bit on 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 the twitters, and uh, I'm very glad that this this book came and it is as good as I hoped it was. Uh, so I had an adventure this past weekend. Oh, I volunteered with the Washington Trails Association, which are a group of wilderness experts that go out into uh, parks uh, of all sizes in uh, in the state of Washington and build trails or fix up existing trails. I have officially done six trips with these guys. When you do your fifth trip, you get your very own helmet. Nice. 
So here's my helmet. Uh, it doesn't fit under the camera very well. It is it is bright green. That's my rank. <laughs> it goes it goes uh, green, orange, blue. Blue is in charge. Uh, orange is is assistant in charge. I, I kind of see my my stickers. I've got some stickers on it now. And then green is is like official official crew member. Um, it ha- it's got my name on it. Wait, that doesn't say Iron Oki on it. It's weird, right? <laughs> <laughs> It's so weird that that's just my name in in, in, in places. <laughs> mm-hmm. I've done five trips or six trips with these guys, and uh, yeah, it's fascinating that five is the one where you get your your official helmet because that's right when I started to say, "Oh, I know what to do." Mm. Oh, we're doing this now. Okay, hang on. Yeah, let me get to work on that. And they actually started like, "Hey, hey, Jeremy, can you like explain the thing to those those guys?" And I was like, "Yeah." D- fuck am i in charge again <laughs> the uh the weekend was basically spent hauling rocks around <laughs> because uh a and 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 identifying dirt i am learning a lot about different kinds of dirt when we build hiking trails you you want to scrape off all the organic dirt and get to mineral dirt basically the crushed rocks type and so a lot of the hiking trails that you uh that you hike on have like but there's there's rocks on one side to to you know retain the uh the soil and then we'll crush rocks with a hammer into like the underbed of the high of the trail we'll get all the um the organic soil out of the way because it's really spongy and not very durable and then fill it in with with mineral soil and uh and and then you've got you know what you what you would consider like a good hardy sturdy long lasting hiking trail I found I have two gifts to offer to this particular trade. <laughs> Number one, it's what I would call tetrising. They refer to it as rock whispering, <laughs> which sounds dope as fuck. So you build a wall of rocks on the side of the trail. Uh, if you've ever been hiking and you've ever seen a wall of rocks like this, you could walk on those rocks. No problem. Da, 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 right. Because those rocks don't fucking budge. They're in there. They're solid. Right. Um, when you pile rocks up, they're not solid. You step on one and it teeters and it also totters. Um, so I get there and they had built a, a rock wall the day before and like in my first couple of trips, I was like, oh, it's good enough. And they're like, it's not good enough. It's got to be, it's got to not budge. It's got to not move. So they they introduced me to the the importance of a good solid rock wall. So now here where I've, I've been doing it a bit and, and I know my way around, I'm like, let me see if I could do it. Let me see if I could fix it. So yeah, I, I played Tetris for a little while with big ass rocks. <laughs> uh and and just and just you know put a wedge in here put another rock in there flip this one over until solid and the 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 uh the more experienced uh folks on the team were like damn (laughs) good to have another person along who could do that (laughs) and the other thing that i found out i had a talent for is um So what we were doing is they had a trail that goes straight up the mountain and that's bad. It's not fun to walk on and it encourages like just big erosion. 
uh, we were called in to to like close to decommission those old trails and build new ones. Particular park used to be private property, and they it have a lot of what the what we call community trails, which is like people just walked wherever, and that trail just became the trail. And so we're trying to make official trails and encourage people to just use those. So, what do you do when you uh, when you decommission an old hiking trail that's actually pretty tough because hiking trails are pretty easy to see and if you did something like toss some branches over it that's not going to discourage no one you you see a trail and you see some branches over it and you're like oh some branches must have fell and then you move the branches and then you hike on that trail Mm -hmm. what you have to do is basically be a designer or some kind of artist (laughs) And and move mossy logs and ferns and tear the shit out of that uh, out of that old trail and plant ferns in it so that it looks like no one ever walked here and no one ever would because that's the wilderness part. <laughs> and so like it, it we you know, it, we, we tore it up a little bit and and I was like, are we good enough? And they're like, no. <laughs> <laughs> this, people if it looks like a trail people are gonna like keep using it's like this is this is ui <laughs> i know ui <laughs> so I, once i realized what the puzzle was in front of me i was like oh okay make it look like as far from a fucking like hiking trail as it possibly can and the uh, like ferns, they, I, I learned uh, that that ferns are actually really, uh, especially here in the in the north in the American Pacific Northwest, ferns are really easy to pick up and move into another place. You got to give them a good little planting spot and and give them some mulch and, and compost to like like take root. But like they are pretty easy to just introduce to another spot. So they're really good for like like tossing onto the side of a trail, uh, you know, after it all got tore up or or like covering up a, a hole where we dug a bunch of dirt out of. And so I moved a bunch of ferns in and found. Uh, an, a couple of absolute treasures which were just uh, old fallen trees that was all that was left is about um, we'll call it about like two and a half feet by two and a half feet like sort of like just tree stump that was just covered in bright green moss and I, I gave it a little jostle and was like oh that'll just pick right up well, come right here and just place right here at the start of this trail so it looks like nothing. It looks like wilderness. <laughs> I did a good job making that trail look like this this ain't no trail. It never was. <laughs> uh, so that's what I did this weekend. And I got a I got a shiny hat out of it. And that's the last thing I'll say about it is that um Oh, that's it. I was uh I was playing uh Gecko and I were doing a a, a Star Wars uh RP. <laughs> it's not a trail, never has been. <laughs> <laughs> I was listening to stormtroopers refer to another stormtrooper as uh, shiny, which is mm. to say that their armor had never been touched by anything. And so while I'm getting my fresh new hat, folks that had been like on their 25th trip or looking at, man, I still haven't scuffed it up enough. <laughs> <laughs> so from here, it's all about uh, how much can I scuff my helmet up <laughs> to show that I've, I've done some I've done some work on the trail, but I'm covering it with stickers already. My story is far less fascinating. Oh, boy. I made a very minor change to my room. And I can't tell if it's the best decision or the worst decision. 
I rotated my bed 90 degrees. And to the audience who doesn't already know this, I have like one space. It is my office. It is my room. It is everything. And long time listeners will remember the time I got one of those room divider curtains. Yeah, yeah. I love and those. I, and I know that you can't stand oh, them. It was, That was the worst decision I've ever made for sure. And like moving the bed kind of does the same thing, but kind of doesn't. In a weird feng shui kind of way. I'm j- I bring this up just because I'm fascinated by how it's like the, how strong the undefined feelings are. <laughs> the energy is now wrong. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to keep it for a bit, but. I don't know, it's weird. It definitely like it, it helps to feel like the bed part of the bed is or the bedroom is is the bedroom part. Because it's now separated vertically instead of horizontally. <laughs> but I know what this reminds me of. What? Um, I hate, 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 hate getting a new phone. Mm-hmm. I hate it. Every little difference between my old phone and my new phone is bad. Even if it's better, it's bad because it's different. And like you've seen the way that I hold my phone. Like I have like I I do dex I I I roll dex whenever I hold my phone. As mm-hmm. I have the way that I pull it out of my pocket and flip it open. I have like just the way that I close it and and I have the way that's like I can I I know how to hold it with one hand to do like at least a number of basic things, right? And so it's like I become very familiar with my phone, with its case, and with the phone's layout. And so when I get a new phone and it's different, it's wrong. (laughs) Even if it's better, it's wrong. And I have to put some time in to get used to it. Because I recently got a new case for my phone. It's the same thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I got used to this one pretty quick, but like. My old one, it didn't have like a, so my new one has like a little like button over that snaps with a little magnet to hold it closed. My other one just had, um, it just had the, it you, it was just open or closed and it stayed closed. And I fucking love, possibly to the frustration of everyone that knows me in real life. I love like being done with my phone and just like clapping it shut. It was super satisfying. Mm-hmm. And now like it doesn't quite clap shut the same way. But I learned I can be almost as satisfied by flipping the little tab over so that the magnet clicks into place. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wow, I want it to I, I don't need it to be a way I need it to be the way that's familiar. Yeah. And as soon as it's not familiar, it's wrong. Who wants to talk about Discord? I'm I'm here to talk a little <laughs> bit about Discord. Oh my god! This le- this update is the worst. I I was prepared for it to be a lot worse than it is from from everyone's complaining about it, but yeah, it's pretty bad. Yeah, Formata says it's not wrong because it's different. It's wrong because it's objectively bad. It, <laughs> okay, um, when you change UI in software. Uh, you are going to run up against everyone who's used to the old UI. Oh, mm-hmm. this was here, that was there. 
this thing to, I did this, then this, then this. And, and I learned that and I know it, I'm good. When you change the user interface, oh, this is over here now, why? It's better, it's wrong. This, that used to be this, then this, then this, is now this, then this. It's two steps instead of three, why? Because it's fewer steps, it's wrong. Because you're not used to it. Mm -hmm. This new update added steps. I can objectively say it's shit because things that you would do on a regular basis take more actions. Mm -hmm. uh, the main thing is going between my channels and my, my direct conversations with people is now find the lower tab which sometimes is hidden under somewhat arbitrary rules i'm starting to get used to it but they're still wrong find the lower tab show it if it is hidden and then click from channels mode to individual conversations mode where it used to be all your channels and your individual all your channels were like here and then your individual conversations were just like a button on the, next to your channels that was fine that was fewer steps Mm -hmm. It takes three or four clicks to go from talking to a direct conversation to my list of channels. And on my list of, of direct conversations, there's this tab at the top, which takes up a bunch of real estate, and I don't know what it is. It's showing me people at random. I guess it's what they're playing, but I don't care give a fuck about those people. Can I hide that? No. I don't care about that person. They're on this list because of like, I, I need to contact them occasionally because I'm, I'm a mod on a board. Well, you need to know what they're playing. I really don't. Yeah. I just hate that. It takes more steps to do certain yeah. things. That's, that's, that's it for yeah. me. I'm not a yeah. UI uh, talky person, but I'm like, Oh, to read my messages, I now have to click three buttons where it used to be two. Fantastic. Great. Yeah. Yeah. The new discord could like, objectively can fuck off <laughs> i can use science <laughs> to tell you that it can fuck off on monday out of nowhere i just had an explosion of creative energy and in some kind of mad blitz i wrote a 6,500 word short story in a day. Impressive. Two things on that as a feat. One, I didn't know I could do that. And two, that took a lot out of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I started it at 10 a.m. and went to bed at 4 a.m. and charged off of like, uh, just just momentum and desire to get the whole idea out completely now. Um, that's not something I could do regularly because um, Tuesday and most of Wednesday, I was Omega Toast. I was hyper trash. I was absolutely just garbage. I could do nothing. And like the best way to describe it is I spent like two and a half days of do thing in one day. 
Yeah, as an NaNoWriMo veteran, I can say that that was solidly three days of work done in one day. Um, I, I've I've managed some pretty crazy word counts, but that certainly matches the best I'd been able to do off an airplane, which isn't fair because airplanes give me superpowers. Yes, and, and, and actually, I had a slight similar superpower in that there was a family emergency that involved uh, some time waiting for, a, a, you know, a family member in the hospital. <laughs> They're fine. We're not going to talk too much about that, but uh, I did spend an, an amount of that day taking care of someone who was in the hospital. And, you know, even when everything's fine, the hospital is very much about, OK, you're going to wait now. Uh huh. How long? Yes. <laughs> so uh, a lot of it was written like, at, at, at you know, in a hospital waiting room. And then that all turned out totally fine. Everyone's OK. That then then it was just like, well, I'm this far. <laughs> Um, the name of the story is Piotr Nikitin murdered Andrew Greywater again. It is a speculative fiction mystery, and I'm very, very proud of it. (laughs) I'm really, really proud of it. The instigation of it was a single sci-fi concept. I was like, what? would happen if this sci-fi thing happened and it's kind of the big reveal of the story and so i i created a character who was being affected by this um by this sci-fi situation of which they knew some things about it and didn't know other things about it and had been dealing with it for a long time and are trying to confront it and then it became a story about culture and relationships which is probably not surprising (laughs) (laughs) so after i wrote it i was omega toast the i wrote it on monday and then tuesday i was omega toast and i'm trying to stick to my stream schedule so i was like well i've got to stream something tonight what i ended up deciding to do was something that was incredibly intense but ultimately required which was that uh for my stream on tuesday i read the story Mm -hmm. which i had not intended to do because i included uh words that i couldn't pronounce well (laughs) in the story (laughs) it's like oh no what am i doing to myself uh it was a bit of a challenge we made it through um, and, uh, and actually a lot of people came out to, to, to hang out and listen to the story and get read. So thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone that came to, to listen to it. Um, there's, there's VODs of it and I'm going to be putting the story up on my website soon. I don't think there's any obstacles and I kind of, what I was drawing is I'm, I'm drawing some, I had some, some photographs up and I'm just kind of like sketching and scribbling some, some possible characters that could be my, my protagonist. And, uh, there are three characters in all. And so I like the idea of drawing an illustration to go with it, but I'm not going to hold my breath on that. Cause it, I draw slow. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it'll be up on my website soon. And on my website, I will also include a link to the VOD where I read it. <laughs> In the middle, someone said, wow, you've really been listening to some LeVar Burton reads, haven't you? It's like, oh boy, have I. 
I can't even pretend that listening to a bunch of LeVar Burton reads didn't put like the medium of short story in my brain. Mm -hmm. And so like the structure of it is I'm thinking of like, okay, how will this sound if LeVar ever read it? (laughs) I like, I'm, I'm inspired to like, like put effort into it because it's like, if by some situation, my story becomes something that LeVar would read. I want it to sound good when LeVar reads it. <laughs> and so then I go to read it and it's like the way that I'm reading it is the way that LeVar would read it. I got accused of that. <laughs> Which I'm like, as accusations go, thank you. <laughs> oh boy, you sure sound like your influences. Or your heroes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, so... um don't want to don't want to talk too much about it uh, because it is it is like I, I I the the proper way to to take it in is to read it or or listen to it. So I don't want to talk too much more about it. But like I'm I'm really proud of what I created and I think it's it, it turned it surprised me. I I did that thing with that character creation thing where um where like I create the characters I create the situation and then the character surprises me. Yeah yeah. Where it's like oh. Oh, well played. Well done. <laughs> That's happened a few times in my life. And mm. and uh, and my characters did that. And I was just like, oh, I didn't expect that. That's great. I'm looking forward to hearing what you think of it. I'm excited. Uh, the funny thing is, I think it's a it's more of a dark story than a warm story. That from from what you told me of the premise when you were writing it, I, I was getting that vibe, which to be fair, I think uh, if, we're, if we're citing LeVar Burton as a. Uh, LeVar Burton reads as a influence. Uh, most of the stories I've heard from him from that podcast specifically have, have been that. He does trend towards dark, and I think he trends towards... Uh, hopeful dark, I'd say. Yeah, hopeful dark. But um, he likes sci-fi. He likes speculative fiction. There's uh, at least one cowboy story in there. There's some nice stories, some some warm stories but like yeah i think he's really interested in a story that goes somewhere Mm -hmm. i feel like that above all else is what gets his attention is like oh this went to a place this said something uh but the the way that he describes it is the only thing they have in common is that he loves them (laughs) well i'm very excited and it's always cool when a friend can get a Whole writing project done particularly so quickly. I'm shocked my own self. I want to do more writing. It's hard. It is. We, we talked about this briefly. The thing about writing for me is that it's very hard to tell. Like, I think like I've, I quite enjoy writing. And again, I probably consider myself more a writer than an artist. Mm-hmm. But the thing about writing is I can never quite tell how long it's going to take. So it's a very hard part of the production mm. of yeah, a thing yeah, for yeah, me. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I can, uh, like, I, I know roughly, unless weird things happen, how long a page of OTL is going to take to draw. But the writing happens when it damn well wants to. I can write on command when I need to. It takes a lot. Mm-hmm. I think like it was really like it was really telling like hitting Tuesday morning and being 
I'm really fond of the phrase Omega toast. It's <laughs> like it's uh, it's it's your it's your Dark Souls stamina bar. You spent it all. It's not even going to start coming back for a little bit. <laughs> like you went all the way to zero to do this. Should we uh, wrap up? I think I can give us an outro. The world is rarely nice and rarely fair. Our stories often reflect what we need in life. So if you need to draw something happy, cheerful, cute, or nice, you should draw it. You probably won't die. <laughs>